Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carbon Neutral. We are so excited to begin another great season. So this week, we have the usual suspects. That's me, Sylvan Gaden, your host, Emily Auerbach, who's now a master's student in business administration and environmental management at Yale, Stephanie O'Daly, a master's student in oceanography at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, and Jordan Tony, a sustainability consultant at Moore Recycling. Hello, everybody. Hey. What's up? Hi, Sylvan. And then we also have our special guest this week, Jasmine Ruddy, a digital organizer for the Big Organizing Project. Yay! So welcome, Jasmine, to the show. Hi, y'all. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So as usual, we're going to start with our updates from the field segment. But starting for season two, we want to mix it up a little bit and put our panel of experts to the test. So we are going to have a game show where we quiz each other on our updates So, Jordan, would you like to start us off? All right. So the National Young Farmers Coalition recently released a survey in which they asked farmers under the age of 40 a series of questions about their work and themselves. They also surveyed former farmers, that is, people who are under 40, who farmed for some time but no longer do. And that hits close to home because I am a former farmer under 40. (laughs) (laughs) Former farmer under 40. (laughs) I am a former farmer under 40 who no longer works in farming. So I thought this was interesting. Uh, But my quiz question is, what do you think the number one reason in this survey that former farmers under 40 reported as the reason for quitting the business? And the options are A, access to markets. B, regulatory burdens, or C, access to land? Ding, ding, ding. Mm. (laughs) I'm going to guess C, access to land. I was going to say the same thing. Oh, God. Uh, Well, you were right. I just really (laughs) want to hit this wrong button. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is correct. C, access to land. One of the reasons for that is that over 70% of the responders to this survey were first-generation farmers, so they weren't inheriting any land, and it can be really difficult to buy land, especially on farmers' wages. That's really sad, but I'm really happy that I called it. (laughs) Yes, you got it. Yes, most important. All right, Emily, I guess that means you get to go next. Yes! All right. Okay, about to learn some business. Okay. So, Mars, the chocolate company who I've talked about at length on the show before, just went all in on the quote-unquote natural foods movement with its partial purchase of which of the following energy bar companies? A, Cliff Bar, B, Kind Bar, C, RX Bar. Buzzes. <laughs> what you got, Sylvan? Um... I'm going to guess Cliff, just because I feel like the others are kind of small potatoes. Jordan, hit me with a no. It's not Cliff Bar. He did it before she even said. All right. Who else has a guess? Kind Bar? No, that one's right. How does Jordan know the answer? (laughs) Jordan, stop. Stop (laughs) eating people. (laughs) All right. We need to take that away. (laughs) Steffi, you are correct. It was Kind Bar. Yes. Um... And <laughs> there we go. Sylvan, you're right. Kind Bar is kind of small potatoes relative to Cliff Bar. Um, but they're much bigger potatoes than RX Bar, who was actually acquired by Kellogg for $600 million just two years after their founding. Um, so I bring this up because right now there's this massive acquisition boom in the natural foods industry, and in particular in caffeine and protein, which has a lot of natural and organic foods advocates worried because what does it mean to have all natural, super from the ground up, organic line of products that is now being sold by Kellogg's. So people are really confused about what the future of natural foods is going to be. And the Kind Bar acquisition is a big symptom of that. Interesting. (laughs) Also, me calling Kind Bar small potatoes is not an insult to Kind Bar because they're delicious. And if they want, you know, to sponsor our podcast, give me a call. All right, Steffi, what have you got for us? So which marine species after being released from entanglement in fishing gear, was fixed with a heart monitor to measure its reaction to stress. Any guesses? you got to give us multiple choice. I want want Uh, to hear... You get buzzed for not (laughs) posing the question properly. I want to hear everyone's guess. I want to do a round table. Okay. Um, 
Dolphin. Okay. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Jordan, what's your guess? Sea turtle. Emily? Sea lion? <laughs> You're tempting yourself. My guess was also turtle, and now I can't think of a different animal. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that okay, well. You got buzzed for stealing mine. Everyone's what's the correct answer? The correct answer is the narwhal. What? The narwhal. <laughs> that's so much better than, than I could possibly have imagined. I know. Wow. That's why I didn't want to give a multiple choice because I feel like it would have been obvious. Yeah. Uh, but to anybody who doesn't know, the narwhal is real. And people don't realize <laughs> It's a sea that. unicorn. Wait, yeah. was that you that didn't think that it was real? I... I'm. I don't think so. No, it was uh, my sister. Erica. Oh, think they were Jordan's real. sister thought it was a mythical creature, yeah. like a unicorn. A like lot she of straight up do. thought it was not real. Yeah. So carbon neutrals <laughs> come in to tell you the narwhals are real. <laughs> they are real and they are stressed. Have you heard the good news? <laughs> narwhals are real. So the idea is wanting to know like how narwhals respond to their natural stressors, which are coming up against predators like the orca. Versus a human stressor, like getting caught in a fishing line or being exposed to a boat. And so what they found was that the narwhal dives down super deep and its heart rate slows, but it's swimming really quickly. And they think that for when they escape orcas, they they dive down deep below the depth at which orcas can reach them. And then they want to slow down their heart rate so that they can stay there for a long time because they're mammals and they breathe air. But that might not be the best mechanism for getting away from human stressors because they might want to be swimming away more quickly. And if they aren't breathing more, then that could cause some problems. So they're, they're thinking that this might be an issue of their natural predators versus maybe human stressors. And so it's kind of a cool study. Yeah. Wow. Look forward to hearing more about the stress of narwhals or things. <laughs> well, none of us got that one right. <laughs> so way to stump us, Steffi. Um, but let's see. Jasmine, I will throw it to you as our guest. Quiz us. All right, y'all. Bring the pain. Okay. My question is also not a multiple choice question. I hope that that's okay. <laughs> it is. It's not okay. Despite Jordan's abuse of the buzzer. <laughs> I hope that uh, y'all will be able to... I think it's similar. Y'all will be able to, 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 to guess pretty well on this one. Okay, okay, so thanks to a multi-year campaign by environmental activists, which country this week had a major coal company lose its final potential funder for a huge new coal mine, almost certainly signaling that um, it will now not be built? Ooh. I'm going to guess China. <laughs> Can I do my own? <laughs> That's not right. Just give me a thumbs down and I'll blast it. Great. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Is uh, it the U.S.? Oh. <laughs> I'm so nervous. I don't want to get buzzed. <laughs> Japan? Uh, All right. It's down to me. Um, Argentina. Oh. Damn it. Who is it? Myself. <laughs> All good guesses. The answer is Australia. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so this week, there was a major company in Australia called Adani that's been working on a years-long campaign to try to get this huge coal mine built in Australia. And originally, environmental activists were trying to work through lobbying the government to try to not approve the mine through regulation. Um, and then that didn't end up working. And so the activists then turned to trying to put pressure on the financial backers of the mine to try to pressure them to pull funding from it, which is really a tactic that we're seeing happen more and more. You know, a lot of uh, activists right now are putting pressure, for example, on Wells Fargo, who's one of the largest funders of the Keystone Pipeline, as it becomes more and more clear that we can't turn to the federal government for that. So they decided to turn to the financial backers and kind of uh, knock them out one by one. And so then as a kind of last resort, Adani turned to a, actually a Chinese funder for this mine. And then the activists turned to put pressure on that funder that this week announced that uh, they would be pulling out and uh, signaling that this wow. mine is probably not going to be built now. Business and society, y'all. Yeah. I would never have guessed Australia, but I don't know that much about Australia. Um, okay. 
So I will have the final quiz question. As you have probably heard, President Trump recently signed off on downsizing two major monuments in Utah after directing Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke in April to review monuments established after 1966. Now, after receiving 2.5 million comments from the public that Zinke himself described as overwhelmingly in favor of keeping all monuments at their current size, what announcement did Zinke make on Tuesday of this week? And your options are, A, he called on President Trump to reverse his decision on Bears Ears in Utah. B, he announced there would be no further changes to monuments beyond those in Utah. Or C, he asked the president to shrink four more monuments. All right, I'm going to guess B. No! (laughs) (laughs) Had to build the suspense on that one. All right. Other guesses? Uh, He asked President Trump to shrink four more monuments. Sadly, let's do the ding. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Yep. He asked them to shrink four more monuments as well as change management of 10 additional monuments to um, allow for more activities than had previously been allowed. And yeah, you got to give the people what they want. Exactly. Right? So he claims, yeah, he claims that even though the 2.5 million comments from the public were overwhelmingly in favor of no further changes to the monuments, he claims that those were obviously orchestrated by political organizations and were not reflective of the public. And then he also said, I don't let public pressure sway me. Sylvan, I love your skeevy political voice right now. <laughs> You're like, yes. When I'm ignoring the public's will, I sound like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that this public servant doesn't let public opinions, opinions sway, sway what he does. Yeah. So that's a fun one. Sorry to end it on a big old bummer of a yeah. note. All right. This one's for Ryan Zicky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I thought this would be relevant as we move into our discussion of our piece of pop culture this week, which is also kind of about political organizing and how we sway the public discourse and all of that. Uh, so this week we are discussing Promised Land. Sweet to all of our listeners that Promised Land is a twisty, turny movie. So if you haven't seen it, I highly suggest you go watch it before you listen to this portion of the podcast, because I think you will get a lot more out of it once you know the big old twist. And uh, we don't want to spoil it for you because it's a pretty good movie. Okay. That being said, Promised Land is a movie that came out 2012, actually produced by Matt Damon and John Krasinski, who also star in the movie. The movie follows two consultants for Global, a natural gas company. They're Steve and Sue, played by Matt Damon and Francis McDormand, and they arrive in a small town uh, and try to get the residents to uh, lease their land for drilling for natural gas. However, they don't get quite what they were expecting when Dustin Nobles, played by John Krasinski, shows up, a mysterious environmentalist who shows up and starts uh, trying to turn the town against global and lots of twists and turns and nuanced debates about issues of energy dependence and wealth and a rural way of life that seems to be dying out ensue. So, Jasmine, as our guest, what did you think of Promised Land? Uh, well, yeah, so this is uh, I, this is the second time I've seen Promised Land. I rewatched it this week, um, and uh, I, th- I think I actually really came away with different thoughts and conclusions this time than when I originally saw it, probably around 2012 or 2013. I think it's a great film. I think this film is a lot uh, more about economic stability and, and economic justice than I remember watching the first time. But yeah, I thought it was a really great film, and... Uh, you know, it, it does uh, portray some uh, tactics that we do see uh, the fossil fuel industry deploy in real life. I think this is perhaps one of the more exaggerated <laughs> versions than of what happens <laughs> in real life. But there definitely are themes of what's portrayed in this movie that do happen in real life. So I'm excited to dig more into those. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, what did you think of Promised Land? I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie. You know, come for the two handsome white dudes and stay for the nuanced conversations. Um, I think the, 
Least realistic part of this movie for me was probably the central romance with Matt Damon and his love interest. They do not talk enough to have the kind of relationship <laughs> that it seems like they have by the end of the movie. I don't know where that came from. But beyond the forced intimacy... Pure animal magnetism. Yeah. I think uh, the intimacy that Matt Damon's character tries to build with the townspeople and the way that he leverages his past and his personal experiences and personal passion into his job of what is essentially being a salesman for natural gas is really interesting. And I think the movie does a great job of showing both from the perspective of his character and of John Krasinski's character, how important it is to go in and have conversations on a really personal level where you're talking about what's important to you when you're trying to create political change, no matter which side of an issue you're on. Um, and in that way, I saw a lot of thematic parallels with our discussion of Aaron Brockovich, where it was all about meeting people where they're at and being really open and vulnerable and honest yourself as you try to bring people on board with a movement. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to hopefully see Jasmine Reddy open up to us and be super vulnerable with us since my takeaway from this movie is that's all you do as an organizer. <laughs> uh, all right, Steffi, what did you think? So this was my first time watching the movie and I was kind of left wondering what the motives were for why Matt Damon and John Krasinski made this because I know that Matt Damon is a really big supporter now of a lot of environmental movements. And I was just sort of curious where this movie was coming from at the time. And I did a little research and found that they actually were originally going to be doing this in a world of them trying to sell land for wind turbines, but they decided to change it to fracking and natural gas extraction because the movies Gasland and Frack Nation came out and they started causing this really big questioning of these industries. So that mm. kind of put this in a new light for me. And I, I also had some of the same questions that Emily presented of character plot development, like curiosity of why John Krasinski's character <laughs> was such a jerk the whole time. <laughs> it just seemed unnecessary. Why are you such a jerk? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then also... Wondering why Matt Damon's character, like, it, it didn't all come together for me at the end. So You didn't buy what they were selling. Yeah, and I think that part of that could be because they were originally writing a script for wind energy. I'm not sure. So I, I was left with a lot of questions, and I'm excited to talk about it with y'all. Yeah. Hmm. I really, I'm really curious, like, what what the movie would have been like with wind energy instead, because I also think that would really have color changed how everybody's expectations were of it going into it. Mm. Um, because I think when you see, Oh yeah, Matt Damon produced a movie about fracking, you kind of go into it automatically being like, well, it's going to be very anti fracking with wind it would have been even more confusing looking at, like, wait, who are we supposed to be rooting for? Like, who are we rooting against? Which can be cool in a film. And I still think that they did a good job of making a layered, nuanced portrayal. Um, some of the relationship issues aside, I do think Matt Damon's character was very complex, which I appreciated. Mm. So it was clear that he truly believed he was doing the right thing for the people of this town, um, colored by his own experiences growing up in a town that hit hard times. I grew up in a large farming community. Football Fridays, tractor pulls, cow tipping, all of it. We had a caterpillar plant down in Davenport a few miles away. They closed that down my junior year. I didn't think anything of it. By the time my senior prom rolled around, I got to see firsthand just how little legs we had to stand on. I mean, the whole farming town fantasy, it just shattered. The truth was, without the plant, without the industry, we had nothing. And my whole town was, I'm not selling them natural gas. I'm selling them the only way they have to get back. Even though at the same time he was offering people as little money as possible and, and doing other kind of underhanded things, um, he was never sort of this evil caricature of like, ah, like oil and gas will frack the land until it's 
on fire and we don't care because all we like is money. Like he was, he was not that at all, which I appreciated. Um, and really until the twist, no one in the movie is portrayed as being like solely bad or greedy. Like they're pretty much all portrayed as, as having multiple, um, motivations uh for believing what they do all of them fairly valid uh so i really liked that about uh promised land also i just love frances mcdormand in every every way and in everything she does yes. she just is her character i would watch her do anything so even though she, her part is not that big i just i just love her so i'm, I'm really happy she was in this movie and she got right. a much more realistic love story which i was all about yes she was she flirting got her, her pants off. She was going to bag her the <laughs> guns, guitars, and grocery store guy. Which I also really liked that store because I feel like it did portray what like rural, not super wealthy towns are like. Just in terms of like, yeah, you have stores that sell kind of baffling arrangements of things based on whatever the owner does. Like the tire and mattress store in Goldsboro? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jordan, what did you think of Promised Land? Uh, so kind of along the same lines of what you were just saying, um, I liked how it was kind of nuanced as far as the way that they portrayed the industry people and the people who opposed them. Because I think in the divided times that we live in, people in the environmental field tend to think of industry people as being evil and careless um, and people in industry tend to think of environmentalists as being stupid and naive. And I don't really think either of those is true or accurate. And, you know, the fact that uh, the Frances McDormand character, she said multiple times, it's just a job. We're just doing a job. Um, so from her perspective, you know, she was just trying to get a paycheck so she could take care of her family. Matt Damon actually thought that what he was doing was helping people. Um, I think that's a lot more common in industry than what we'll probably talk about later with the John Krasinski character who was actively acknowledging that what he was doing was evil and just didn't care. I don't think that's really common. I think people have a lot of ways of justifying their job and there are also different perspectives on things. So. Yeah, but uh, I think we should talk about fracking in general because um, that is what the movie is is about. Uh, they don't get too much into the science of it. Um, so, Jasmine, maybe you could give us a little primer on fracking, uh, as it's commonly known, but hydraulic fracturing is, of course, the, the technical term. So what does that mean? Okay, yeah. So fracking, or, or yeah, like you said, Sylvan, hydraulic fracturing as its technical term um, is, is basically the, the term for the process of extracting natural gas, a type of fossil fuel, from far below the surface of the earth. So fracking is used in cases where to extract natural gas reserves um, that tend to sit uh, in like pockets far, far below the surface of the earth. So they'll use these huge drills to basically drill wells that are like often a couple miles into the ground. And then they'll use those wells to inject a whole lot of water and a lot of uh, chemicals, which is collectively referred to as fracking fluid. And they'll they'll inject that uh, into the wells uh, as a way to blast open these pockets and then capture the natural gas. So when uh, when we hear about the the sort of controversy and the the environmental concerns about fracking in in the sort of short term, it's almost always related to uh, to water, right? So um, we often don't know what the industry uh, is using in the contents of their fracking fluid, which is a, a major point of the controversy. And so grant, groundwater contamination um, can definitely be a threat. And uh, and then of course also like any other fossil fuel, natural gas does emit carbon emissions. So that means that it is a contributor to climate change. And, uh, and further, we also know that um, if natural gas uh, pipes or well sites leak, natural gas can also emit methane. That's a different greenhouse gas, right? Which actually, according to the EPA, methane is over a hundred year period, about 25 times more dangerous as a greenhouse gas uh, than CO2. So in other words, contributes 
uh, 25 times more to uh, to climate change. So we, uh, when we hear, I know we're going to talk about this um, more in a little bit, but we often hear fracking uh, considered what's called a um, bridge fuel, and uh, uh, oftentimes when uh, when folks are considering. The, the carbon dioxide emissions, um, the greenhouse gas emissions of fracking compared to other types of fossil fuels, they're often not including uh, methane in that. What is the, the bridge? The general idea behind the bridge fuel argument is that the amount of energy that's required over the course of the next couple of decades is going to be significantly more than what traditional renewable sources are going to be able to provide given current capacity and state investment in that infrastructure. And in the meantime, it's much better that we're using something like natural gas than uh, coal and oil to sort of keep the wheels running as we get up to speed on renewables. Yeah, the only thing I was going to add is that I think it's really important to keep in context here that even as we're having like debates about whether or not natural gas is a bridge fuel, it's still a fossil fuel that's contributing further and further to climate change. And I know we all probably know this, but we literally have a handful of decades left to effectively address the threat that is climate change. Um, so I think the real important conversation is less about this uh the idea of, of natural gas being a bridge fuel, and a lot more about how quickly and how strongly we're investing really, really heavily in uh, in renewable energy in that, that transition, right, um, which is something that I think we're not seeing right now. Yeah, for it to be a bridge, there has to be something at the end of that bridge. <laughs> so the movie itself uh, doesn't get its hands too dirty with the, the veracity of the various claims of environmental issues like groundwater contamination and seismic activity and all of that. But I wanted to dive into that a little bit. So one of the big things we've heard is that it can increase seismic activity. So basically what we're meaning by that is risk of earthquakes and things of that nature. So does anyone know if that has been documented uh, to be an issue with fracking? Yeah, so before 2008... No earthquakes had ever been recorded by the USGS in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And then between 2008 and 2016, there were over 200 recorded. And that's just one example. For another example, in Oklahoma, they had a 160-fold increase in the number of earthquakes recorded. And that surpassed the number recorded by California in 2014. And reaching up to an earthquake magnitude of 5.6, and they can link these directly back to locations of fracking. And what I think is the scariest part is that it's not just a one-time thing. Releasing the wastewater back into the ground can cause seismic activity to increase for decades down the line. They started doing this back in the 60s when they were drilling for gas, and they they recorded that up to decades down the line, there was still increased seismic activity happening around the site. So uh, it's... Just for perspective, what does a 5.6 magnitude earthquake look like? It, it can cause structural damage to buildings, but it's unlikely to cause human fatalities or buildings to collapse. Okay. So beyond the environmental concerns, and as Jasmine pointed out, in Promised Land, we get some some rudimentary talk about groundwater contamination and methane and all of that. Mostly we're talking about the economic uh, considerations on why a town would or would not want natural gas companies to come in and start drilling. And so even the title of the movie, right, the idea of the promised land. So it's, there's this promise of like, I'm going to make you a millionaire. You, you could have gold underneath your land and you're just sitting on it and you could make millions. And that's, that's shown as being super attractive to the inhabitants of the town in the movie. So my question is this idea of a promised land and uh, providing riches that, that the people haven't seen, you know, in generations, are they delivering? 
I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to remember the context that Promised Land is supposed to take place in the mid-2000s, right around the time that the recession happened. And the fracking boom itself actually is recorded to have officially started in 2007, um, so also right at that same time. So the the story that's like portrayed in Promised Land, which is this community that's, first of all, already being hard hit by the recession itself, but then also is a rural community that has been already hard hit. Uh, for decades by industry continuing to leave. That is a very real situation that I think could be true of many, many communities across the country. So yeah, a lot of the issues around how much fracking has economically delivered to these uh, to these communities is, you know, a, a lot of the conversation too is is just about the fact that they're sort of um, they're sort of taking advantage of these communities in the first place, um, and they do acknowledge that in the film. There's a moment where. They say, um, we all know why you're here. Why aren't you in Philadelphia? Why aren't you in Pittsburgh? You know, we all know why you're here. And Matt Damon's character, Steve, acknowledges that he thinks that this is they're you know, they're coming here because they're bringing uh, solutions to these communities when they have, as he sees it, no other solutions on the table. So mm. um, I think mm-hmm. all of that is, you know, is important to keep in mind, too, is about kind of why they're here and why this is all happening. Actually, let's play a quick clip. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a language advisory for this one, but Steve gives a great little speech about what he sees in the town and what he thinks that he's bringing to them. You guys just fucking baffle me how you just don't get it. Yeah? Why don't you tell me? Because I'm really curious about what it is that I don't get. Money. Money. And I'm not talking about little pay increases. I'm talking about fuck you money. You don't want to apply for college loans for your kid? This money says fuck you loans. You worried about car payments? Fuck you payments. The bank's going to come and foreclose on your farm? Fuck you, bank. Fuck you money is the ultimate liberator. And underneath your town, there's fuck you money. I think even in that scene, I, I actually really saw Matt Damon's character like still coming from... Uh, this like very genuine place of feeling like he's he's bringing them the answers that nobody else is going to bring them. He calls them stupid, I think, because they don't under- like they don't understand what they're turning down. When he, in, in his eyes, there's like there's no other options. Like that, you know, this is going to be the only thing to save the town. Um, right. But yeah, definitely not <laughs> not the best uh, tactic to employ in a time of desperation. So one of the sort of shades of gray in terms of how much economic wealth an extractive industry brings to a small town like this is the additional infrastructure requirements and the sort of socio-cultural changes that can often accompany an industry that's really characterized by a boom and bust cycle. Um, So you see this not only with fracking, but with big oil booms, with the gold rush. And so that means that you have to expend quite a bit of taxpayer money on building out roads, building out new infrastructure, that there end up being a lot of transient populations, um, Mm -hmm. which means that sometimes industries like sex work and the bar industry tends to come up and sort of disrupt the traditional way of life in the town. So that, you know, that's typically what fracking ends up looking like in U.S. communities, Um, but of course, not all parts of the U.S. are the same. And I know that, Steffi, in Alaska, where you now live, you said that the experience with energy extraction and job creation is pretty different. Yeah. So right now in Alaska, over one third of the jobs are related to the oil and gas industry. Mm. And even with the falling revenue of low gas prices decreasing the amount of gas that we're extracting, 90% of the state's income comes from oil and gas. Alaska does not have an income tax. So this is where they're getting money to have all roads, schools, universities, stuff like that. And actually, they have a program called the Permanent Fund Division, where every year the oil and gas industries give a portion of their profits back to Alaskan citizens. For example, this year, every Alaskan citizen of any age is getting $1,022. What? Sweet. So like a five-year-old? Yes, a five-year-old. That's nuts. So, and, and I'm not necessarily saying that this is sustainable. I mean, right now, Alaska's in a huge recession because 
we're not pumping as much gas as we could when gas prices were $4 a gallon. Um, And so it sets you up for a, a, a really susceptible model and we don't have another way to collect more money. Um, But it's just kind of crazy to think that like, obviously Alaska is a huge state, so that's not necessarily going to be the same in Oklahoma looking at natural gas extraction, but there's a lot of money in fossil fuels. All right. So let's talk about that twist. Here's your second spoiler alert. (laughs) So you're going through the movie. You think that Dustin Nobles is this like very smug, um, but also very earnest environmentalist trying to spread the word about his family farm that went under because of fracking, uh, killing all the cows. And then you find out that he made the whole dang thing up and it's pretty shocking. So there's the one twist. Then the one two punch is that he actually works for Global. And the whole thing was a setup. Yeah, really. The whole thing was a setup. They sent him in to pretend to be an environmental presence and then uh, be exposed for a liar so that all of the townspeople will then go against him and uh, vote yes to have Global come in and start drilling. So I want to know, Jasmine, is that is that plausible? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do think that Promised Land is, is definitely meant to be a sort of like exaggerated, almost villainous version of the tactics that actually happen in real life. But there are themes that are based on 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 things that, that the industry actually really does do to try to maintain power and maintain profits. There's like a moment right when the plot twist happens where Dustin says something like, to to uh, to Steve, he says, "We win by controlling every outcome," and I think that's a really great takeaway sentence that 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 is, I think, really true about like the way we see the industry uh, interact with the public and with um, elected officials and with scientists in real life. So, is there an example of a town where this actually happened or something like this? Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the most egregious examples that has been in the news over the last year or so is what came out through leaked documents about the activists at Standing Rock. So if you guys remember, this was a huge story that was leaked in early 2017 about uh, actions that had taken place at Standing Rock. So um, the place where the sort of center around the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline was happening that was a lot larger last year. So there were leaked internal documents that basically uncovered that Energy Transfer Partners, which is the company that's behind building the Dakota Access Pipeline, they actually hired a private security contractor called Tiger Swan. And this... Uh, Tiger Swan. Tiger Swan, yeah. Um, so it's called... <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sorry, I know this is serious, but... No, well. yeah. What a <laughs> Go name. Ahead. Uh, so yeah, so the folks at Tiger Swan were hired by Energy Transfer Partners to actually um, to deploy a series of tactics that ranged from tapping into phones and using like tapping into radio to record activists at that Standing Rock campground all the way to actually going undercover in the camp itself to spy on the activists there to collect information and to report that information back to energy transfer partners that they then used to discredit the activists and to try to understand what their plans were going to be to try to get ahead of them. All of this in the idea of, again, of trying to control the outcomes, right, to try to influence what was happening um, and use their power and the money that they had to influence what was happening um, to get the outcome that they wanted, which was to ultimately discredit these activists and, and build the pipeline. Yeah. The other sort of most egregious one that I think a lot of people also know about is in, what was it, like late 2016, late 2015, the LA Times and then an organization called Inside Climate News uncovered documents that exposed that ExxonMobil had known about climate change since as early as 1981. There was like a, some document that said a, a quote-unquote victory would be defined as a moment when the public is uncertain about the dangers of climate change. Yeah. But that is, you know, of course, like one of the the more egregious examples that we've seen. I think what we see, you know, a lot more in everyday life that happens far too often is is just the way that that the fossil fuel industry interacts with with the public and with elected officials through things like political donations to candidates and to politicians, um, to former fossil fuel company executives um, holding public office later in life. You know, what we 
um, hmm. sometimes called the revolving door. <laughs> Um, we know a little bit about that yeah, in North yeah, Carolina, kind of, don't we? Yeah. Um, and a lot of, yeah, so a lot of things like that are kind of more what we see, but really does have, you know, devastating effects in the way that they're able to influence um, outcomes and legislation. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Jasmine. And it, and it makes me think about the way that politics and energy ended up being so intertwined in our own home state of North Carolina. So obviously our previous governor, uh, Pat McCrory, was previously an executive at Duke Energy, so clear connection there. Um, But more specifically, as we think about fracking, from 2011 to 2015 or so, the North Carolina legislature was spending so much time and energy trying to lay the groundwork for a big fracking boom in North Carolina. Their plans didn't really pan out that well, though, The North Carolina Supreme Court actually decided in January 2016 that the Oil and Gas Commission that was going to be responsible for giving out fracking permits was unconstitutional because it had been stacked by the legislature. So nothing's really happened. Can we get a a buzzer sound on that one? The, The interesting thing about the North Carolina battle was that there's a big... Uh, beer industry in North Carolina, and they were funding a lot of the opposition because they were concerned that it was going to affect the water that they use right. at the breweries. So, big business. <laughs> we had big it's like beer uh, it's time. like Mothra versus Godzilla. <laughs> Just huge businesses throwing wads of money at one another. And yeah. as per usual, I side with beer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when in doubt, when, when in doubt, side with beer. That doesn't mean that there's no energy industry in North Carolina, though. And the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is actually supposed to be bringing natural gas through eight North Carolina counties uh, starting next year. And there's a lot of opposition around the building of that pipeline. And some of the dynamics that Jasmine was talking about earlier with pipeline construction are definitely coming into play. Cool boy. I think I just read, Emily, is this right? I think I just read that the Department of Environmental Protection in North Carolina voted to delay the vote on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Is that right? They did, and that's partially because of some of the legal challenges that have been going on with the pipeline. Um, There have been a lot of legal challenges around use of eminent domain, where basically, in line with everything we've been talking about in this episode, people are challenging the pipeline company's right to claim eminent domain because they're saying that fracking is not, in fact, a public good. Um, And the companies are saying that it is and asking for accelerated rights of eminent domain where they can seize land without having to pay the landowners first. So those those challenges are ongoing in court and the legislature is hanging out and just sort of watching it all play out for now. That's kind of funny because in the movie, uh, one of the things that was pinpointed as being pretty inaccurate is this idea that like, a town specifically would have this like, yes or no vote on allowing in fracking (laughs) as opposed to just like, having individual households lease their land or not lease their land. Um, So obviously that provided a good plot device, (laughs) but it wasn't super accurate to how it actually plays out. So ultimately you're still trying to win hearts and minds, um, but it's a little bit less of like an all or nothing game for, for the fracking industry or the environmental industry um, because there's no drama in that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Less drama. So promised land as a movie I think it asked a lot more questions than it answered, or at least it left me with a lot of questions. Um, and as far as films go, I think that could be a positive. Um, I know coming into it, I don't have a huge base of knowledge around fracking. It's one of the areas of energy and environmentalism I know the least about. And I still have conflicted feelings about the idea of a bridge fuel and the idea versus the idea of, yeah, providing some economic boon to struggling people in a small town. Um, that's something I think about a lot. I don't really know what my takeaway is. I definitely think that using the tactics to undermine people's faith in credible journalism and science is really, really gross though. And it's hard to be on the side of the industry when they take part in those kinds of things. For me, at the edge of the day, Promised Land is like a film that tells a story about democracy and about like the way that other players can influence democracy. 
I think that Promised Land is going to be a film that's going to, you know, unfortunately still is relevant in 2017 as much as it was in 2012. Um, this is why we have our What's Giving Us Hope section. Yes, yes it is. Because... And it also just shows that we keep it real here at Carbon Neutral. Yeah. We're not going to sugarcoat it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a good segue, Jordan. Let's move on into what is giving us hope for the Earth this week. Alright, so a new University of Washington study found that fishing season timing can have a major impact on the health of a fish population. Uh, So basically, poorly designed fishing seasons prevent fish populations from evolving and adapting based on environmental factors and instead cause them to adapt based on arbitrary times determined by state employees. Uh, The problem is, if a salmon is born in the later part of the season, it will likely have the instinct to spawn in the later part of the season when it's mature. So if a state says that it's open season after August 1st, the fish that spawn after August 1st will have a much lower chance of passing on their genes than the ones that have the instinct to spawn before August 1st, even though this has nothing to do with their fitness to survive. Um... But basically, this study called out why that has a negative effect on fish populations. And hopefully, now that we have this information out there, uh, we can come up with a better way to design fishing limits rather than just arbitrary dates. Okay. That's uh, semi-helpful. Way to put a positive spin. Yeah. (laughs) Information gives me hope. That's true. Knowledge is power. Yes. Mine also starts out unhopeful, but gets a little hopeful. So last November... Voters in Washington state rejected an initiative that would have created the nation's first tax on carbon pollution. Um, this was due to a number of reasons. Some of it was like major infighting among environmental organizers and activists, uh, maybe caused by a couple Dustin nobles or two. Just kidding. I have no idea if that's true. But anyway, it did not pass. However, this year, Democrats um, picked up a seat in the state legislature, making it very solidly blue. That, which means that they will likely get a second chance. So they're looking at a policy right now that reduces greenhouse gas pollution and also redirects investments into a suite of different programs that would promote clean energy, revamp the transportation sector, clean water, and help communities of color in Washington state. And it will also likely include a tax on carbon and can serve as a model for the rest of the country. So I'm hopeful that all of the different populations and players and interest groups involved in crafting this policy can come to an agreement and get something really solid and show uh, that it can be done. So I hope it happens. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, Steffi, what's giving you hope for the earth this week? I too have a semi dishopeful, semi hopeful. Oh no. What's wrong with us this week? Um, so doctors in the UK are now backing legal action against their government ministers on the grounds that they have not been fulfilling their commitments to cutting carbon emissions in line with the Climate Change Act of 2008 and as a part of the Paris Agreement, um, which is supposed to limit warming to two degrees Celsius at the most. And the doctors are doing this on the grounds that climate change has serious implications for our health, well-being, livelihoods, and the structure of organized society. So hopefully with that support, they're able to force their government to uphold an agreement that they agreed to and won't back out of, hopefully. Yeah. Jeez. All right, Emily, what's giving you hope? So uh, Steffi brought the people power. I'm bringing the pollinator power. It turns out that urban farms, which we're big fans of here on Carbon Neutral, provide habitat for pollinators to a degree that we couldn't even imagine. There's a researcher in Chicago who found a species of bee on a Chicago green rooftop that had never before been seen in Illinois. And this started them down a line of inquiry, which revealed that 13% of New York State's bees are in community gardens in New York City, and half of Germany's bees are in gardens in Berlin. So it turns out that pollinators that are really struggling and declining generally 
are actually thriving and finding new homes in urban farms and community gardens where people are much less likely to spray pesticides um, and there's reduced competition from other insects. Very cool. Wow. Bees are yeah. moving to the city. <laughs> what a lifestyle yeah. change. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jasmine, what is giving you hope for the earth this week? So giving me hope this week, a couple days ago, New Zealand's government announced that they are going to be creating a a new special visa program specifically for people that they are classifying as climate refugees or refugees from uh, that are fleeing from uh, some of the most low lying Pacific nations um, that we know are have been being some of the. the frontline communities that are being affected by the effects of climate change. So right now, under international law, climate change is not listed as a category that protects refugees that you can like be categorized under. So they're uh, establishing this new special program for folks who've been experiencing the effects of sea level, sea level rise or the other effects of climate change. That and it will now be easier um, to uh, to be able to move to New Zealand. That that's, is that's super really important. Cool. I I could not have dreamt up a more hopeful way to end this massively depressing episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Jasmine, for that. And also, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to have your perspective. Thanks so much, y'all. It's been so great to talk with you guys, to get to just rewatch this movie and have a great conversation about it. I am a huge fan of this podcast, and it's been such a treat to get to be part of an episode. Yay. Yay. <laughs> We're so glad. Um, couldn't have asked for a better guest to kick off season two. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, speaking of discussing things, if you saw Promised Land and were also blown away by the twist or have other things that you want to tell us about, please drop us a line. You can email us at carbonneutralpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at podcastingneutral, or you can go to our website, carbonneutralpod.com podcast.com where we have fun things like blog posts and we'll put links from um you know all the stats and figures that we talked about in this episode so thanks so much for joining us and uh tune in for our next episode